millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. I'm Alex Kruger, International Managing Editor in London. I'm Emily Tampkin, Senior Editor, U.S. in Washington, D.C. And I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs, also in Washington, D.C. It's Thursday, the 18th of August. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Russia has been urged to withdraw military forces from the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in Ukraine. Any radiation incident at the Zaporizhia NPP can affect the countries of the European Union, Turkey, Georgia, and countries from more distant regions. Everything depends solely on the direction and speed of the wind. If Russia's actions caused a catastrophe, the consequences may also hit those who remain silent so far. Just how dangerous are the surrounding ongoing attacks? Then we turn back to Taiwan, which is welcoming yet another congressional delegation and around which military exercises are ongoing. We also take a listener question on the FBI search of Trump's resort slash residence, Mar-a-Lago. Faithful adherence to the rule of law is the bedrock principle of the Justice Department and of our democracy. Upholding the rule of law means applying the law evenly, without fear or favor. Under my watch, that is precisely what the Justice Department is doing. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. All right. As you heard at the top there, listeners, we are going around the world today. So let us just get right into it with Alex and Katie. There is growing concern about Russian attacks around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Russia is believed to be using the plant as a shield for its ongoing war in Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said this week that his country would fire on Russian troops launching attacks on Ukrainian targets under alleged cover of the nuclear site. Ukrainian officials are also saying that Russia wants to disconnect the power plant from the Ukrainian grid and connect it to Russia's own grid. Alex, how how significant is all of this? First of all, we said at the top there that countries, obviously not Russia, are urging Russia to pull back and to stop attacking around the site. Exactly how big a deal is this? I think it is quite a big deal. There is growing concern about the situation around Zaporizhia. 
the Russians actually captured the nuclear power plant in the first 10 days of the war. And in fact, I remember I was on the Ukrainian border with Slovakia and Hungary with a colleague. We were reporting on the refugee flows in the first few weeks of the war. And we were hurtling through the Slovakian countryside in the dark of night, listening to this retro radio state coming in and out on the radio. And this anthem from the 1980s came on, 99 Red Balloons by Nena. And I said to my colleague, it's really not very reassuring to hear a song about a nuclear apocalypse on the day that the Russians first shelled a nuclear power plant. It's really unprecedented that any country would attack a nuclear power plant. It just seems like such a self-destructive thing to do. But this was one of the targets of Russian military activity in the early week of the war. They moved very quickly along the southern front as well as in the east in the Donbass. They captured the power plant. The Ukrainian staff who were running the power plant were held hostage. The ones who were on shift at the time it was seized, they were there for six weeks or so, completely under Russian control. And since then, the Russians have maintained their control. And what they want with Zaporizhia, the idea, it seems to be that they take control of Zaporizhia. If they can manage to connect it to the Russian nuclear grid, that would then supply power for Crimea, the peninsula they seized in 2014 and illegally annexed from Ukraine, which they've had difficulty with all the resources for that. How do they supply water? How do they supply electricity? So it's a part of that puzzle. Now, the idea of these attacks around Zaporizhia have raised the level of concern that the situation could just go out of control. There has been more shelling. The UN nuclear agency, the IAEA, has said it is worried about the situation there. The G7, other countries have urged restraint. It's very difficult to be 100% clear who is carrying out the attacks, because on the one hand, the Russians control the plant. So why would they shell their own forces? On the other hand, the plant is on Ukraine's sovereign territory. And if there were an accident, it would be mostly Ukrainians who are the worst affected. So would they cause that kind of damage? That said, Russia has more of a track record of using so-called false flag attacks. So there is a lot of concern and it's a very unstable situation. It's also an unprecedented situation. It isn't there are not other conflicts in the world today that involve nuclear tensions. Obviously, there are. But just the fact that it's an ongoing active war and the potential for something to go wrong and the fact that we don't really know what it even looks like for this to go wrong, I think is what's what's chilling to me anyway. Yeah. And the other thing that looms in the background is Chernobyl. Most of all, the nuclear accident in 1986. And a great deal of the damage of that came from the secrecy around it. And the it was partly the what happened on the site, but it was the refusal of the authorities of the Soviet Union to admit what had happened, which made it so much worse. Now, in May, I spoke to the distinguished Ukrainian historian, Serhii Plokhi, and I asked him about this. And he, he attributed what happened at Chernobyl to the authoritarian nature of the government. I think that authoritarian nature continues through to Russia. And what he said was the authoritarian government to stay politically alive, engages in as much cover-up as possible. And in societies where information is limited, the negative impact on health, on the environment is much, much bigger than in open and democratic societies. 
And for him, the bottom line was, and these are his words, when an accident happens and you're a person living in the vicinity, your chances of protecting yourself are much better if you live in a democracy. The second thing about Chernobyl is that Russian troops actually seized the Chernobyl site on the first day of the invasion of Ukraine. And it turned out that they didn't particularly want to hold it. But what they did do was they churned up radioactive dust in the region. The armoured vehicles going through the closed zone caused some damage and caused radioactivity levels there to rise. So there is a certain measure of recklessness to be seen there already. I think another point to bear in mind is that Russia has already shown that it is willing to use nuclear materials to achieve its aims. If you think of the fact that the Russian agent Alexander Litvinenko was poisoned with polonium on UK territory by agents of the Russian government, no, that's not a nuclear weapon. But it does indicate a willingness to use these means that are extraordinarily serious. And I think that's what got, what's got people worried. If Will the Russians use Zaporizhia in, in some way? It's a very unpredictable situation. Alex, there have been some calls for Russia to agree to a demilitarized zone around this plant to prevent exactly what you're talking about, to, to try to guard against a, a catastrophic in, incident. Do you think there is any realistic prospect that that is in the offing? That is something that Moscow might agree to? No, I don't think there's any prospect of that at all. Um, I think that would completely frustrate the Russian objectives in seizing the plant in the first place. They have no. I don't think they have any interest in demilitarizing it. And the Russians have come up with a number of excuses or pretexts to say to the IAEA, no, you can't carry out an inspection of Zaporizhia, it would be too dangerous for you to come in from Kiev. We couldn't ensure, ensure your safety. They also said that the UN itself was obstructing visits by or seeking to block visits by IAEA officials, something the UN has denied. I don't think we're going to see any kind of inspection, let alone demilitarization in the foreseeable future. And this goes back to what you were saying earlier. It's from before the beginning of this war, Russia has lied. Yeah. Right, has just told bald face, complete like things that are not that are demonstrably untrue, and so it makes it very difficult. So there's that, right, which is that we don't totally know what's going on because they are continuing to lie and don't seem to have any incentive to stop lying. And then there's the other part of it, which is just a disregard for who gets hurt in the process. And obviously, it's they started a war, so there's not a ton of regard. But it's it's a nuclear. So you might think that would be given special consideration. But as you said, throughout throughout the war, so far up to and including now, there, there's been a lack of care about secondhand consequences. As we move forward, Alex, you mentioned that, that Ukrainians are have said we are going to attack. We've, meant, we've mentioned that Ukrainian officials are concerned about the plant being moved from Ukraine's grid to Russia's. What will you be watching on this moving forward? I suppose watching to see what can be established about who really is carrying out these attacks. But also, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has said this week that his country would fire on Russian troops launching attacks on Ukrainian targets using the nuclear power plant as a cover. So the Ukrainians are also upping the ante. I think that is one thing to watch. The other thing to watch is the connection between Zaporizhia 
and what else has been going on in Crimea. So in the past two weeks, we've seen these two big attacks in Crimea, one on the Saki airbase, which destroyed a number of aircraft and seems to have considerably harmed Russian capabilities. The other one was an attack on a substation at Janskoy. And that is the substation that would be used to link Zaporizhia to the Russian grid. That, that was the route that it would take. So I think I would be looking at what is going on around the Southern Front, at Crimea, and where Zaporizhia fits in all this, and as well, any kind of counter moves by the Ukrainians as they seek to push forward in the south. It looks more and more like the counteroffensive in the Kherson region is not so much about a mass movement of troops, but in targeting specific sites and taking out strategic bits of infrastructure. Well, we will continue to follow that. And in the meantime, we are going to move from one conflict that has the potential for unintended consequences and escalation to another. All right. Traveling now to Taiwan. U.S. Senator Ed Markey led a bipartisan delegation to Taiwan this week, just two weeks after U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit. China has officially condemned this visit as well. And no visits of congressional delegations to Taiwan are largely routine, as we have discussed on this podcast, both the timing and the current state of U.S.-China relations make these visits especially tense. Katie, talk to us a little bit about both this visit and China's response. Yes, as you say, congressional delegations visiting Taiwan is a pretty routine event. This is all about the context and the timing. So just to revisit the to revisit the visit a US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan. Please excuse the terrible punnery there. On the 2nd to 3rd of August, that was significant because it was the most the most senior visit by a US official in a quarter century, but really it was significant because it was in the context of very badly deteriorating US-China relations and this real concern from Beijing that the US is shifting away from its long-held stance on Taiwan and, and a sense that they wanted to really draw the line at Nancy Pelosi's visit and indicate their displeasure. So we saw them take a range of actions from banning the Taiwanese goods to cyber attacks on Taiwan, and then to what really grabbed all of the headlines, military exercises in the waters entirely encircling Taiwan after the speaker had left. And what we have seen in the days since, and what I think is the most significant point going forward here, is a real attempt to to shift to a new normal, to really move the line of Chinese operation significantly closer to Taiwan. So prior to Nancy Pelosi's visit, Beijing had generally respected, although it doesn't recognize what is known as the median line of, of the Taiwan Strait, this halfway point. China has staged incursions across that line before, but it, but before Nancy Pelosi's visit, there's a tracker that has counted up all of the incursions prior to this. There were 23 incursions across that line from September 2020 until August of this year. In just the week following Nancy Pelosi's visit, there were more than 100. So the sense and those incursions have continued daily since and through and following this second congressional delegation visit that we've seen this week, a bipartisan visit led by Senator Ed Markey, a Democratic senator. So I think China is 
making the best use it can of the current situation to shift its operating procedures around Taiwan. In response to the second visit, it has said that it's going to carry out new drills. Taiwan is also going to hold its own drills. So look, I think in the short term, you have significant risk and concern coming from this real upsurge in military activity close to Taiwan. Clearly, that increases the risk of some sort of an incident. But I think the medium and the longer term, more serious issue is these kind of exercises and the response that we've seen from Beijing is only hardening sentiment on Taiwan against any interest in coming back or in coming in the first place under Beijing's control, because the Chinese Communist Party has, in fact, never ruled over Taiwan. So this is compounding the issue that the Chinese government is looking at in terms of how it pursues what it calls the peaceful reunification of of Taiwan. And we're seeing domestic political sentiment harden on all sides. So we're also seeing here in the US, Kevin McCarthy has said that if the Republicans take the House in the midterm elections, he will also visit Taiwan. I think we're seeing Republicans seize on the issue of of Taiwan. That is so helpful. (laughs) It's helpful. If you're not tough on Taiwan, you're weak on China. So domestic politics here is also supporting a ramping up of real overt support for Taiwan. So that's just building towards this increasingly combustible situation, which we should say all sides are very, nobody wants this to escalate into real military conflict. But in in enforcing their respective red lines, this is building towards quite a dangerous situation. I have a question that there actually isn't, I can't possibly know for certain, but I'm interested in your opinion. And you can say that you don't know or you don't want to opine with that lead up. Is it that these visits provoked China into making more incursions and thus making Taiwan less safe and that the visits had this unintended consequence? Or would you say that it is that Taiwan and One China are so central to Xi's vision and his conception of his own legacy that they were going to do this at some point anyway, and that if you're going to, if there was going to be a reason, it might as well be a show of solidarity. There are elements of both. I think we want to be really wary about buying the Chinese line on this, that they have been provoked, that they have been quietly minding the status quo and the US and forces on, on Taiwan left them with no option. Right, because if uh, that were true, if that were true, then these visits wouldn't bother you. Right. You know what I mean? Because if you weren't threatened by the status quo, then U.S. delegations coming to visit, as they have long done, wouldn't be a problem. Yeah. So it's difficult to when you speak to to people on the Chinese side about this. Part of the difficulty is it has become very difficult to have clear, direct communication. This is such a priority issue for the Chinese government that everybody down the line, even to very junior levels. When you try to talk to them, Taiwan to about Taiwan, is concerned if they are if they could be viewed as speaking on the record or even on background in any way, shape, or form that they answer robustly and that they that people will go from zero to one hundred in terms of arguing that this is really not at all China's fault and to trying to present China's position as as innately reasonable and, and specifying China has offered Taiwan this one country two systems model. They've said Taiwan can maintain a high degree of autonomy. So really, what is all the fuss about? That is willfully ignoring how unappetizing that model is to Taiwan. It was particularly with what we've seen happen in the last couple of years in Hong Kong with the introduction of the national security law. That that is also the model that Hong Kong was meant to have of one country, two systems and a high degree of autonomy. And we have seen 
what that amounted to in practice. So it is somewhat disingenuous, although perhaps the people who say this mean it quite genuinely to say, I don't understand what the problem is. We specified quite clearly how this will work because increasingly that that is just not a real world. It's just not a possibility in the real world. And it is, Xi Jinping has really stoked nationalism in China. He has talked about reunification, in his words, with Taiwan as a historic mission. So he is partly responsible for building up sentiment around this. So I think all sides are accusing the other of changing the status quo. And all sides are, through their actions, wittingly or not, changing the status quo. And that the Taiwan issue has been able to, there has been an element of compromise Diplomatic obfuscation, agreeing to, to set this issue aside over the last half century, which has enabled Taiwan to develop into a thriving, one of the world's leading producers of advanced technology. And it has enabled the US and China to pursue and to build their relationship. I think partly that context is what has now changed. US-China relations are really rapidly un- unraveling. And one of them, the, the also worrying short and medium term responses we saw from the Chinese side was to immediately then cut talks on, for instance, military cooperation, on, for instance, climate change cooperation. So at a time when tensions are rising and the situation is getting more dangerous, that is when you need more direct talks. That is when you need to broaden contact beyond these core red line issues. So that's a very worrying trajectory. And a lot of people have pointed to and also on the US side, pointed to, well, Newt Gingrich did this in 1997. So really, China has chosen here to overreact. And it's a fair point, except that everything is totally different now. In 1997, the United States and China were on a course to developing ties. China was petitioning for accession to the World Trade Organization. Both sides believed that their future would be better with better relations between the United States and China. That has all gone now. And the United States and China are both positioning each other as the, the this hostile adversary, systemic competitor, however, whatever words you want to use, they are positioning each other in opposition to the other. So Taiwan is being is being brought back into the middle of that. So it, it's a it's a dangerous situation. And it, it should be stressed, it's the Taiwanese government wants these visits. This is not happening against the will of, of, of Taipei. This is something that, that, that Taiwan wants to happen. But we've seen the current administration, led by Tsai Ing-wen, walk a very careful line. You know, she has been really intentional about not trying to provoke Beijing further. She is very careful around any language involving independence. It, there will also be a presidential election in Taiwan in 2024. And we may well see a successor to Tsai Ing-wen, who is significantly more hawkish on China. There's domestic politics in play on three sides. I don't, can you have three sides to, to, to a situation? But it, none of it is leading in a good direction. It's, a real, it's really a time for serious, serious talks behind the scenes, efforts to do all of the deeply unsexy work of, of de-escalation, finding areas for cooperation, because the current trajectory is taking us in, in a very dangerous direction. Mm. We will continue to follow this. I encourage you all to continue to read Katie's writing on it. And also we will have her, of course, back on this podcast to uh, to discuss more Taiwan. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print or both 
from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just 12 pounds. That's one euro a week in Europe and just two dollars a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including the historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But for now, we're going to go to a section that we like to call... You Ask Us. You Ask Us. Great work. This week, our listeners sent in the following via Twitter. Quote, do you think Trump and his entourage, including Kushner, that's Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law, who was also his advisor in the White House, wanted to provide the confidential information to Saudi Arabia and or the UAE in return for benefits like the Saudi investment in Kushner's company? Okay, so what this listener is referring to 
if you listened to the Monday podcast, we spoke about this a bit. If you follow the news at all, I'm sure you are familiar. Last week, the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago, which is Trump's residence slash his resort. They were reportedly looking for classified information. It later came out later in the week after every prominent Republican had said that this was an outrage and the FBI was doing a witch hunt and blah, 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 that, oh, whoopsies, they were reportedly looking for documents related to nuclear weapons. So immediately speculation begins as to why, like, I have to say, there's not a lot about Trump that surprises me at this stage. If you had asked me, like, what's the worst thing he could have possibly taken from the White House? Had my mind gone to that place, I would have said documents related to nuclear weapons. I'm not sure that like, I'm not, but I'm not sure that it would have. I might have been like, it might have been too much for me to fathom. Anyway, that's reportedly what he took. This is according to the Washington Post. So obviously people start speculating, like, why would a person do this? And people noted that back in 2019, Trump apparently was reported to have given the green light to nuclear permits for Saudi Arabia. There were reports that Tom Barrack, who is a very wealthy friend of or acquaintance of Trump's, would have stood to benefit from this. Also, after leaving office, Kushner received $2 billion, that's billion with a B, from the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund for his private equity firm. There were, again, reportedly objections from people within Saudi Arabia, but the crown prince Mohammed bin Salman said, we're giving him the two billion. So people look at all of this and they're like, did you take these docs to give to Saudi Arabia? But I do think it's important as I understand this is a bit cheap to outline it all and then be like, but we shouldn't speculate, but we really don't know what the exact documents are. We may never know what the exact documents are because they are in a box mark. They were from files that were like top secret, perhaps cannot be discussed ever in public, which is part of why it's so shocking that they were being searched for in Mar-a-Lago, which I cannot stress enough is like not a secure location for documents that are like top secret but classified. The other part of this that I just want to say is that the response from Trump and the Trump team to this first has been appalling. Second of all, has been like maybe the documents were planted and also Obama also had nuclear documents, which he did not like I, I cannot stress enough that is not true. That like Obama probably took lots of nuclear documents. Oh, and also, as president, he could just stand over documents and declassify them with his mind. Okay. <laughs> and then, you know what? Sure, the rules of declassification and classification are complicated, and there may be some documents where the president can just say, yep, that's declassified now. But documents relating to nuclear technology and nuclear secrets are very explicitly exempt from that. So we both shouldn't speculate as to what... Because, again, if you would ask me a week ago, would we be having this conversation? I'd be like, no, that's wild. And here we are. So we both shouldn't speculate and should wait for the investigation and also shouldn't fall for, I think if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably not. Well, Trump said, I think that they're throwing a lot out to try to discredit this investigation. And most of it, the vast majority of it should be seen for what it is, which is lies and deflection. Emily, do you think we will ever get any sense of what was in these documents? Like even just the areas they covered yeah, I actually do. I just think that the, it was a reminder of what it was like during the Trump years when things were just leaking all the time. I just, I think that at some point this is going to come out. We already, last week, the big story was that Trump, all these Republicans were demanding that they release the warrant, which Trump could have done anyway. But, and then indeed the attorney general, Merrick Garland came out and said, yes, we're going to, yep, we're asking for it to be unsealed. And then that document reached the press or the list of what they were looking for reached the press and learned that it was in addition to this like secret box, the information on the president of France, like 
all of this we already know. So I do think that it, I would hope that it, we never find out exactly what this nuclear document says, but I do suspect that we'll probably at some point get some more understanding. I also just want to stress very quickly that this is separate from the other investigation that's going on regarding Trump, which is about January 6th and his role in fomenting a mob that tried to stop the certification of a presidential election. That's also ongoing. So that, like, we have that ongoing investigation, we have this ongoing investigation, and I just want to say that there are people who said that it was horrible for a former president's residence to be searched. I don't even disagree with that. I think it is a scary precedent. But the alternative, which is that there's just no accountability for anybody's actions, and that you can just take, reportedly take documents related to nuclear weapons, that's wild, and keep them in your resort, and you could just do that. No, that's obviously it is preferable to still live in a country that has rule of law, even if that means that the occasional former president needs to have a summer resort search. On which note, Emily, can I just ask you briefly about the response we've seen from some Republicans to really attempt to discredit the FBI and where you see some of that leading? No, we're good. We already had someone try to attack an FBI office in Cincinnati. I think the language around the Department of Justice and the FBI has been, and you know what, I am not, I encourage people to be skeptical of every government administration, of every presidential administration and to not take authorities at their word necessarily. When you have members of Congress tweeting defund the FBI, when you have FBI field offices being attacked, when you have people pointing to Merrick Garland's name and saying well, it used to be Garfinkel and smearing the department in an anti-Semitic way when you have people not creating, not making criticisms based in fact, but doing far-flung conspiracy theories. Yeah, we're in a very, it's scary. It also, like much of what the Republican Party in the United States does today, I think it's very short-sighted. I thought it was short-sighted of them to not wait for a little more information before coming out and defending Trump. And I think that that smearing the Department of Justice and the FBI is also short-sighted. And short-sighted in the way that they can't necessarily control like what their fans and admirers do with this information, as we have already seen. We could, we could go out, we could talk about how it's the height of irony that this political party that made defund the police sound like the most radical, worst rallying cry that anybody could ever make is now yelling to defund the FBI. We could say that it's ludicrous that the to think that the FBI is somehow in the, in the thrall of radical leftists. This is where we're at right now. It is extreme. Like, I don't, I would say it's telling what we've been told, right? Like, I would say it's very telling that they would rather try to discredit the FBI and the Department of Justice rather than face the fact that perhaps the president, the former president took something he should not have and needs to face the music for that. But I, I don't, I don't think it's terribly shocking. So listeners, we will obviously continue to cover this investigation and follow this investigation and discuss it and I'm sure, unfortunately, we'll have reason to discuss a former president in the future. But for now, Alex, get us out of here. Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. Listeners, you can send yours in at podcastsnewstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for our interview episode on what's happened in the year since the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. If you are a regular World Review listener and you have not already subscribed, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've already subscribed, thank you so much. Please also rate us five stars, five stars only, and leave us a good review. It really does help. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening and until next time. Hold up. 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.